Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. On the show this week, I'm talking to David Pollack about the comedy duo Bob and Ray. You know, two guys who who are raised during the Depression when radio was coming into its being and totally obsessed with radio and all they ever wanted to be were announcers and end up being big comedy stars who get a TV series, do Carnegie Hall concerts and have a Broadway show, I just thought was a, a, a great story. It's Bullseye. From Bob Newhart to George Carlin, the comedy duo Bob and Ray influenced some of the 20th century's finest entertainers. It was Andy Rooney, who I quoted in the book, who said, uh, you know, I, like so many Bob and Ray fans, think I appreciate them more than the next guy. There was that sort of connection. In just a minute, I'll talk with writer David Pollack about how Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding created that bond with their audience. David Pollack's new book is called Bob and Ray, Keener Than Most Persons. And then my interview with the Emmy-nominated actor Tony Hale. He's having a pretty darn good year. He's been in a couple of big television series in recent months, Netflix's Arrested Development and HBO's Veep. Tony and I will talk about his early commercial work, his faith, and this one's important if you're on Veep, who to call when you need to learn a few new swear words fast. Plus, our go-to rap critic recommends some all-time great tracks and I'll tell you the true story of a man who spent the last decade and a half of his life secretly building something amazing in a rented garage. That's all this week on Bullseye. Don't miss it. If you tuned into Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding on the radio, say in the 1950s, driving in your car, and you weren't really paying attention, you might not even notice that you were listening to a comedy show. The duo had gentle Midwestern voices and an air of, I guess, what you might call pleasant authority. But if you were one of their fans, glued to the radio, you'd hear some of the most influential American comedy of the 20th century. Bob and Ray were clued into the dopiness of American media, and they highlighted it not by turning up the volume, but by adding strangeness, slowly and surely, maintaining a perfect pitch the entire time. A perfect example is Wally Ballou, one of their oldest and most beloved characters. It's Bob Elliott in full incompetent radio reporter mode, always starting his introduction just before the mic is turned on. Here he is talking with Ray as the owner of an air conditioner factory. Speaking from the general offices of the Uncomfortable Air Conditioning Company in Berwyn, Illinois, and uh, I'm talking with Mr. Marvin Leppert, the president of the firm, as I understand it, your company deliberately makes air conditioners, uh, air conditioners that... Wait a minute, engineer, let me take that again. Cut that out, I'll take that last one. As I understand it, Mr. Leppert, your company deliberately makes air conditioners that create a good deal of discomfort. Well, yes, our company deliberately makes air conditioners that uh, create a good deal of discomfort. Of course, most firms in our field uh, make their air conditioners deliberately. In fact, uh, we've found that it's almost impossible to make an air conditioner by accident. Well, what I meant was the discomfort factor in yours is deliberate. That's right. Now, I have one of our Model 48Bs going on full blast here in the office now, and I think you'll have to agree that the agony it's putting you through is worse than anything you'd normally expect from an air conditioner. Yeah, I'd say it's about 15 above it here, and uh, the wind is blowing it off the air conditioner. Uh, uh, edit that out a little later, uh, engineer. Well, get off the air conditioner at a good 30 to 35 miles an hour. Well, I'll fix that up by the time it gets out of the air. Oh, well, you're close. Actually, it's uh, 12 above, and the wind velocity is 38 knots. 38. The best part is that there's absolutely <clears throat> no, excuse me. Sorry, they'll cut that out. No regulator of any kind on the machine. You can't turn it down. And the only way to turn it off is to chop it to pieces with an axe. <laughs> My guest David Pollock's book about the pair is Bob and Ray, Keener Than Most Persons. Pollock himself wrote on shows like All in the Family, MASH, Cheers, and Frasier before he took up the lucrative mantle of comedy biographer. Um, David, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure, Jesse. Nice to be with you. So did you listen to uh, Bob and Ray on the radio as a young man? 
I did. Very young man. In fact, the eighth grade, I was uh, home one day from school and uh, just stumbled into a show they had on uh, NBC at around uh, 11.30 in the morning, a 15-minute show. What struck you about them as uh, as a kid? What, what drew you in? Well, you know, uh, this was this would have been around 1953, uh, 52 or 53. And uh, prior to those years, comedy on the radio, the big network comedy stars like Bob Hope, Jack Benny, all had great shows. They dealt in big punchlines. They had studio audiences that sort of uh, their laugh sort of signaled what was funny to the home listener and big orchestras, and they sort of played to the third balcony. Bob and Ray were more intimate. There were just these two voices in a in a little studio. That is a really distinctive thing about what they were doing on the air, which is that in a time when comedy more or less directly meant jokes, um, yeah. They were not doing jokes. I mean, jokes isn't part is a part of what they do, but it's a pretty small part. For the most part, they're just kind of exploring. Yeah. Well, their uh, their routines were uh, premise driven and and character driven. And uh, as I said, this their this camaraderie, this infectious camaraderie, was combined too with the fact that there was something very appealing how they related to each other and played off of each other. You, you sort of wanted to learn their secret handshake. I, I want to play another clip of uh, Bob and Ray. This is from. Um, this is from the uh, the sketches, the series of sketches that g- lent its name to your book called Mr. Trace, Keener Than Most Persons. Sure. Um, I don't necessarily think that you need to know that this is a parody of something to get it, but maybe you could just describe what people in, you know, 1955, 1960 yeah. would know about this, in its, its context. Yeah. The original was called... Uh, um, Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons. And it was on both CBS and NBC for about, uh, well, I want to say 20 years, and I think went off in the very early 50s. And uh, it was a detective show and, and where they traced lost people. And uh, it, it was notorious for uh, their exposition. It, it was full of scenes like you there hiding behind that purple curtain with the silhouette of a gun protruding from behind in your shoes. So obvious. it was just, you know, uh, it was that blatant. Well, I mean, you can imagine the combination of the exposition in, say, like an yeah. episode of Law and Order with yeah. the fact that you can't see anything. Yeah. Well, and and, and that's obviously why you had to do that in, in radio. But uh, they just went to some extremes. So that was the initial premise of all the parodies. And uh, and the I guess the only other thing you need to know, it was peopled by these two Irish detectives. So there was, there was the pronounced Irish Accents. This is from an episode called The Peg Leg Man Murder Clue. Time again for Mr. Trace, keener than most persons. Today, the surly old investigator draws from his files the folder marked The Peg Leg Man Murder Clue. It's late of an afternoon in some season. And in his office, Spike Delancey expostulates. Look here, boss. In my sandwich, worms. What's that, Spike? You they say? look like worms. Oh. Saints preservus, boss. You don't suppose that somebody's trying to, to get me, boss? I would say this is a plot of some kind, Spike. Something more deadly than anything that I man could imagine. I hate worms in my sandwich, boss. Spike, I think the heat has been getting you a little bit. Here, sit down by the air conditioner and cool off. All right, boss. Here, let me pour you a glass of cold water from the water cooler. Thank you, boss. You wouldn't be after having a little beer, would you, boss? I think there's some in the cooler, Spike. Fine. Thank you, sir. I'll go help myself, boss. You do that, Spike. Meanwhile, you look for food. Uh, Why, 
Spike. My teeth almost came out, boss. I was saying clues. Clues, right, Spike. I'll look through my report on the last case. Hmm. Nothing in here about sandwiches. <laughs> Nothing in here about murder. Save the service, boss. The door, Spike. Do you want me to open it, boss? I think you'd better. Someone evidently seeks to enter through the attic. Wait. All right, boss. Why, who are you? Lurking there behind the silken curtains which cover the door to my air-conditioned office. I'm not lurking, sir. I'm right here. I Spike. want to talk to you. Spike, it looks like some kind of a peg-legged person. Saints preserve A seafaring man, perhaps. Obviously so, boss. Yes. Look, he has a hook to in one arm, He boss. has an evil glint in his eye. Saints preserve us. I wonder why he's come here, Spike, and why I'm... he stands there in the doorway, looking at us in contemplation as if, at any moment, he might attack in some way. Or else, maybe he's here asking for help, wanting us to help him. No, it's not for help. He's here to fire at us, Spike. Saints preserve us, boss. Yes, I could down and back of the desk. All right, it's going to be open warfare. I want to talk to ye, both of ye. Us, sir? Yes, ye, both of ye. Well, come in and sit down. Saints preserve us, boss. I don't like like the looks of this. Looks like a bad crime, Spike. Here, I'll sit here. I think I'll call this case the Peg-Legged Man Murder Clue. And so we learn why Mr. Trace calls this case the Peg-Legged Man Murder Clue. Be sure and join us next time when we'll hear the old seafarer say, And then we both settled on our side and sank beneath the waves, and I went down with it. Fulfilling the unwritten oath of all men. In the next episode of Mr. Trace, Keener Than Most Persons. Sailing the seas, their life's work. That was a clip of Bob and Ray from a recurring sketch of theirs, Mr. Trace, Keener Than Most Persons. My guest is David Pollock, author of the new book, Bob and Ray, Keener Than Most Persons. So can you tell me a little bit about... uh, what they were doing on the air. What what was their process? Yeah. Well, if they were here, they would say simply we were entertaining each other. But uh, there was there was more to it. Uh, number one, they were ad-libbing. Uh, it was totally spontaneous. They were just p- playing the characters that, that they had assumed for that bit and had done for years prior. It was the only thing they knew to do. There was no time... In addition to doing their their two-man show in Boston, they had other staff duties. They were just hired as announcers. So they had to do newscasts. They had record shows. They did dance remotes. So there was no time to write material or even steal it. So they just started mimicking these things. They really weren't tidy sketches. They were sort of uh, just little riffs. You know, a lot of them were, were kind of sloppy. And uh, as Ray once said, looking back, you know, the best thing about him was it gave us uh, an opportunity to be bad. Well, one of the things that is so interesting about the format that they used on the radio and, you know, later their their stage work and stuff was often stuff that they developed on the radio or developed in the past and refined and so on. But working on the radio, they had often hours to fill. And so they just had... uh, premise, a format, and it's you can hear them in that sketch kind of wandering through, through it and just finding details that they think the other one will get a kick out of. Yes. Yeah, that, that's very true. And they also knew that uh, the other guy was always there to uh, support them and to no matter how far out on a limb one or the other might go, the other guy would be there to to legitimize it. There's something interesting, too, about the tone of the show, and I alluded to it in the introduction, but it, it's something that's easier heard than described, which is that 
they're doing a comedy show and sometimes a really, really goofy comedy show, but it is always presented completely plainly, not just deadpan, but there is something very like fundamentally normal about these two guys on the air. Yes, yes, yes. You you've put your finger on a key part of it, and uh, I think what you're alluding to is the fact that Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding, uh, as themselves, both off and on the air, are without any show business swagger or affectation. So this this authenticity uh, also affected their characters. So it made it easy to uh, to um, suspend your disbelief and go with the bit. And since the premises were based on just ludicrous, absurd <laughs> concepts, you had to believe it. Otherwise, it becomes a cartoon. Let's take a listen to another uh, Bob and Ray sketch. Um this is uh, another one of their classic characters, Mary Magoon. Um, and Mary Magoon is a parody of something as well. Maybe you could explain what Mary Magoon yeah, parodies. Sure. Uh, Mary Magoon was uh, – initially she was called Mary Margaret Magoon. It was, a, it was just a takeoff on uh, Mary Margaret McBride who was, had a, uh, a woman's uh, mid-morning show on – NBC for many years. She was hugely successful, on for about 20 years or so. And uh, she just did, had, did interviews and features that uh, for housewives home all day. And, uh, and this was sort of a popular feature at the time. Uh, so Mary Magoon just became uh, their, uh, you know, their sort of in-house female voice. Here she is uh, presenting a recipe on Bob and Ray. Hello again, everyone. This is Mary Magoon. It's so good to talk to you all again. Well, now that it's time that we all think of food and so forth, I thought I should like to talk briefly about a favorite salad of mine. I know that salads are playing an ever-increasing role in serving of foods in fine restaurants and so forth. That's why I have today a favorite recipe of mine that I'd like to give you all now. It's called frozen ginger ale salad, and this is how I make it. First, you take a huge crock, and uh, I fill it with the contents of a quart bottle of ginger ale. Either pale or golden makes no difference. You just pour it in. Then I take a head of lettuce, Boston, or iceberg, or romaine, and I shred that and put that into the crock containing the ginger ale. Then I swish it all around until it's thoroughly swished. I get to giggling on that. <laughs> it's so much fun. You can wear a rubber glove if you so choose. Now, after it's thoroughly swished, I take a marshmallow and I cube it. And that will keep you busy. <laughs> And uh, after that's been cubed, friends, you put that in, too. Then I take a chocolate bar with almonds, and I remove the almonds and break the chocolate up into little bits and put that in, too. Then I swish it all together, and uh, when it's completely swished and settles down a little into the crock, I pour it off into a mold made in the likeness of a dear friend of mine. Then I... Take it up and put it in the freezing compartment of my refrigerator. Now, after it's hard, and you can tell uh, when it's hard because it will be hard when you touch it, you see, uh, you take it out and you chip it into individual servings, serve it with argyle sock sauce and garnish with pimento. Well, that's about it. You serve that to your family and I know they'll really appreciate it. It's a dish fit for a king. After a break, more on the lasting influence of Bob and Ray. Plus, our rap critic recommends some all-time great records you might not have heard. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, gang. Live in Atlanta or environs? Up for a good old-fashioned hangout? Good. Mark down Tuesday, September 17th. I'll be in town for a public radio conference, and so we're going to have a meetup. It's at Meehan's Public House on Peachtree Street downtown at 10 p.m., 
Tuesday, September 17th. Ophira Eisenberg, the host of Ask Me Another. Glenn Washington, the host of Snap Judgment. And my pal Chuck Bryant from Stuff You Should Know will all be there as well. And who knows who we'll pick up at the public radio conference. Meet up with us Tuesday, September 17th at 10 p.m. in Atlanta at Meehan's Public House for some weeknight drinking. You can find details online at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, David Pollack, is a comedy writer whose new biography of the legendary radio, television, and stage comedians Bob and Ray is called Bob and Ray, Keener Than Most Persons. So Bob and Ray were, at one point, simultaneously on the radio and television for a total of, you know, 15, 16 hours a week. Um, and and I think they, you know, they were not unsuccessful on television, but it seemed like radio was their real home. Why do you think that was? Well, uh, I think that was uh, the case because so much of the, their shows took place in your imagination. And... Uh, you know, all of the characters uh, existed in the listeners' minds and in Bob and Ray's minds. So when they went on television, they each, separate from each other, had their own images of what these characters look like. And each of their bits pre- presented its own set of obstacles. The Mary Magoon features, uh, the one like you just played, you know, putting putting Ray Goulding in, in drag would have been so over the top. It just wouldn't have been Bob and Ray. Uh, and it, it, Ray just wore an apron. Uh, so you only saw her from the top of her apron to her waist. I say her. Uh, and uh, as she prepared her dishes, which were unmistakably Ray's hands, though. You know, as their careers went on, they were influencing these people who became huge figures in comedy. And as comedy went on, it became more and more countercultural. Um, and I found myself wondering what these two kind of straight-laced New England dudes who, you know, were, you write about their relationships, their wonderful relationships with their family in in your book, what their relationship was to... Um, this countercultural world that started to happen in the mid 1960s, you know, as as George Carlin's hair went from short to long, and you know Richard Pryor was invented and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think I know exactly what you mean. Uh, you know, they they remained doing the only thing they they knew to do. You know, uh, they didn't chase any kind of fads. Um, and that's sort of one of the the, the uh, endearing things about them, in a way. Uh, they, as the decades went on, they kept being rediscovered by through just sheer generational turnover, and everybody thinking that, gee, we, who are these guys that you know we've just uh, stumbled into? And uh, as you pointed out earlier. Uh, you didn't have to know these routines that they were doing. Uh, they were just funny in and of themselves. So, uh, you know, without foreknowledge required, they still work. They were still as absurd and uh, still as funny. Bob and Ray had a sideline career. Um and it was a sideline career that in its own way was almost as important as their comedy career uh, in, in that they helped invent the idea that uh, an advertisement uh, could be funny. Um, it, broadcast advertising especially, but also print advertising through, the, through you know, 1960-ish, 1965 was almost always uh, a hard sell, um, was a list of attributes of a product Often a really long list. If you ever look at a magazine from 1960, you just think, wow, this is just a block of text. Um, And at the end of it, uh, just, you know, a tagline. And uh, tell me about how they came to help create 
something different? Well, uh, in around 1954 and or 55, somewhere in there, uh, a guy by the name of Ed Graham, who was a copywriter at uh, the uh, Young and Rubicon advertising agency, uh, was convinced that you didn't have to keep doing these hard sell commercials that you just elaborated on. And so he, they had this client, Peel's Beer, a regional beer in the east and up, up into New England and parts of Pennsylvania, I guess. So he devised this concept of the Peel. There really were three brothers who initially had owned the brewery in Brooklyn, you know, back in the late 1800s. But he devised this campaign of Bird and Harry Peel, these two brothers, animated with Bob and Ray doing the voices. And and it was a real uphill battle uh, at at the agency, you know. These two Joker characters uh, just didn't seem dignified enough to sell beer. There was a perception in those days that to sell beer, you had to see the bottle pouring the beer into these nice uh, Pilsner glasses and foaming over the top. And so they they started the campaign. They they tested it in in a couple of markets, and uh, they were an immediate hit. And they caught on. They ran for six years throughout the East. Uh, at one point, the, the New York newspapers had to print <laughs> the time that the commercials were going to run because the people didn't want to miss them. Let's take a listen to one of those Peel's beer ads that uh, launched this secondary side career. Um, in this clip, they, uh, the Bob and Ray play the Peel's brothers, and, and they're perfecting their pitch. We're the Peel brothers. I'm Harry, and he's Bert. To tell you why the driest of all the dry beers has a superb, distinctive flavor. He means Peel's tastes best. Tell them right out, Harry. Peel's tastes best. You bet it does. Now let's make a few mouths water. All right. Uh, Hey, I asked for a better shot of the label on the 12-ounce bottle. Peel's tastes best of all because it's the driest of all. Oh, how would you like to get your hands on some of that, viewers? Dryness in beer means less sweetness, and because... All right, cut. Get a shot of my brother here with this target. Because the drier the beer, the better the taste, we aim for a dryness. And where do we hit? Right here. In the bullseye. This shows Peel's is the driest. It has to taste the best. All right. Why not try Peel's yourself? It's... True beer flavor is absolutely unique. There's no other like it. Be sure you tell them that. It's Bullseye, and I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedy writer David Pollack. His new book about one of the most influential comedy duos of the 20th century is called Bob and Ray, Keener Than Most Persons. Um, I want to play uh, one of their great sketches, and this is from their this this version is is from their 1971 album, The Two and Only, which came from their uh, Broadway show in 1970. Um, It's called Komodo Dragon. This was one of their many career rediscovering revivals. Um, They had not performed on stage basically because they had a, a lousy experience in the 50s at some point, right? Uh, they did have a disastrous uh, nightclub engagement uh, in uh, Buffalo in, in 1953, uh, a, a week in Buffalo. But even before that and, and throughout, there was all – they were uh, – you know, when, when removed from their uh, radio studio comfort zone, insecurities lurked. And uh, this husband and wife producing team, Joseph and uh, Jana Levine. Which is, fu- which is funny about the insecurities because one of the challenges of doing comedy on the radio is that unlike doing comedy on stage, you can't know when you're right. Uh, if you're on stage and you tell a joke and the audience laughs, yeah. that is the securest you could possibly be in yeah. that I am funny. Um, and I think for many people, it's unnerving to do comedy in a context where no one is laughing at all uh, because you don't know whether you're doing it right. Yeah. Well, if I'm following you... They were used to that because in their – or maybe this is what you're saying. In yeah. their in their studio, uh, they were the arbiters of – you know, they were entertaining each other. 
although the audience was in on it, and that was sort of the fun. You know, the audience were sort of the uh, co-conspirators in, in a way like that. Uh, but go, going on on the Broadway stage presented you know just uh, all kinds of trepidations. The, the, the uh, John and Joseph Levine, the producers, had yearly meetings with Bob and Ray for like five or six years, and every time they turned them down, they just didn't want to do it. Finally, they had no no particular series going at a given point around 1969 or 70, and so they agreed to uh, do this show. But the trepidations were. Uh, you know, they were radio guys. You know, radio guys made fun of Broadway actors, which they did all the time. So let's take a listen to this uh, to this clip from 1971 of Bob and Ray doing Komodo Dragon. We're delighted to have with us the world-renowned Komodo Dragon Authority <laughs> from Upper Montclair, New Jersey, Dr. Daryl Dexter. Dr. Dexter, would you tell everybody all about the Komodo Dragon, please? The Komodo dragon is the world's largest living lizard. It's found on the steep-sloped island of Komodo in the lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago and nearby Rinja, Padar, and Flores. It's a ferocious carnivory, and one swipe of its tail can render an enemy senseless. Now, where do they come from? The Komodo dragon, the world's largest living lizard, is found on the steep-sloped island of Komodo, hence its name, and that is in the lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago and the nearby islands of Rinja, Padar, and Flores. We have two in this country, two Komodo dragons, which were given to us some years ago by the late former premier of Indonesia, Sukarno. I believe I read somewhere where a foreign potentate gave America some Komodo dragon. Is that true? Yes. Um, it is a really different experience to hear them with the audience laughing at the jokes. I think that there really is something to the way that radio and audio draw you into this dialogue between these two people. You know, as you pointed out, that bit was uh, done on the, in the Broadway show. And when forming that, they had to address this very issue. A lot of their big popular bits, they tried those in, in when putting together the Broadway show. And they just, uh, on a one-to-one basis with the audience, they just didn't work as well. And so it was bits like this, strict, strictly two-man, you know, uh, interview-type uh pieces that work the best, and certainly this falls into that category. There's something else which is that one of the great joys of watching funny people be funny is getting the chance to see discovery. Um, and it's one of the things that makes seeing great improvisation one of the best comedy experiences you can have when you see a couple of improv performers on mm. stage and they find something and latch onto it and it's the perfect thing. Mm. And that's one of the joys of listening to Bob and Ray is listening to these two guys mm. just find things and just think, oh, yeah, that's the thing. In, in a way that if they had you know, gone through a list of 12 possibilities and picked the best one earlier that day, it, it wouldn't have the same impact. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and I think it, it sort of attached to that is what I alluded to earlier about the with this identification with them, the audience is almost uh, you know a, a third partner in, in a way you know I think it was Andy Rooney it was Andy Rooney who I quoted in the book who said uh, you know I like so many Bob and Ray fans. 
think I appreciate them more than the, the next guy. Uh, there was that sort of uh, there was that sort of connection. So, how did Bob and Ray's work change the you know the later generations of performers that you talked to for the book? I think they it, those who were influenced by them. Uh, you know, when you think back to the George Carlin of, uh, gee, when would that be? That was the 60s, say, uh, in the 70s. He started on Perry Como shows and Ed Sullivan shows doing, you know, uh, motor mouth disc jockeys, sports casters, wacky weather guys. Uh, that's, you know, that's Bob and Ray, you know. So, so there was that influence. Bob Newhart said when he was starting out uh, – well, number one, he did a he did a two man show with a a friend he knew from an advertising agency that he worked with, and they did what was a two man Bob and Ray show. There's something that I I think to some extent you still hear and see echoes of, in that um, in that ridiculous stuff that format of the silliest, most ridiculous journey that you can be taken on presented in the simplest, plainest, least ridiculous way. Yes, totally serious. Yeah. Well, look, you take uh, Wally Ballou uh, interviewing the engineer of a new bridge that's just opened uh, on the Wabash River that connects two points to the same bank. And uh, and Wally is asking him, I, I, this is a beautiful bridge, but you're just you know, connecting two points. Why would you do this? And he said, well, you know, uh, look, I admit I didn't have anything down on paper, but I had a rough idea of of what I wanted to do here. And you do it totally serious. If you and I were uh, 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 driving home today and we heard on the radio on a serious news show an interview like this, it would be hysterical. And and that's the basic principle that's at work there. You know, you have you have to believe it. And because they believed it and they believed in their characters, it made it easy for us to believe it. Well, David, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was a lot of fun. Nice being with you, Jesse. David Pollock's new book is called Bob and Ray, Keener Than Most Persons. Want to hear extended versions of the interviews on this week's show? Go to MaximumFun.org to find them. Music writer Andrew Nas visits Bullseye every once in a while to recommend great hip-hop. This week he's bringing us some of his all-time favorites. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? Hey, Jesse. Let's start with the Memphis Legends Triple Six Mafia featuring S.O.G. and Lil Glock with a song called Victim of a Drive-By, Mask and the Clock. So that's a song about someone coming to get you to kill you, and it almost sounds like they're coming to get you to kill you from like beyond the grave. I mean, that is a haunting tune. Yeah, I mean, that was the whole Triple Six Mafia MO back then. This song isn't actually like on the Satanism tip, but half the time they're coming to get you on behalf of their Dark Lord. <laughs> and it was crazy. Like, it, it was really some of the most menacing 
and intense rap music ever set to tape, and it was being done by, like, teenage kids in Memphis. I read that that sample is actually Diana Ross's voice. Yeah. It's just a huge Diana Ross loop and an 808 drum track. That's pretty much the whole song. When do you like to listen to this kind of song? Every morning when I wake up. <laughs> you better take up a because this shit is all like that. Squeeze my trigger. Blast it to take the life. Yo, in the gallery. Let's take a listen to your second recommendation, De La Soul's Ego Trippin' Part 2. MC in the world. You got to give me, give me mine, cause I'm heavy when I weigh it. Watch the way I say it. Ego trip. I changed my pitch up, smack my butt if I never did it. The flavor's being bucked, but brothers ain't getting it. Get it? Or else you're a goner. When I rolls over, you're gonna have to wanna lamp. Cause it's the Chattanooga champ. Taking a train. So by the time this song came out in 1993 on De La's album Balloon Mind State, they had already been sort of the wonder children of alternative hip-hop and then uh, killed their image as the wonder children of alternative hip-hop. And this song is a song that people interpret in very different ways. Some people see it as a sort of direct satire of the hip-hop of the time. Um, How do you see it? I think that it's just them being completely overwhelmed by everything and trying to, like process all this information and doing it in this really like brilliant abstract way but also in a way that's like like you said both satirical and also kind of like burnt out and sad and it's kind of perfect the lyrics of this song are for folks who aren't deeply steeped in hip-hop a sort of pastiche of allusions to other hip-hop lyrics um and in some ways, that is, you know, in some ways that's kind of reflective of the way that De La Soul used pastiche of other genres of music sonically to make their first couple of records. I guess I, I always imagine the album as being written by somebody who learned the English language through listening to rap records. I buy that. That makes sense to me. But... I don't know if that was the plan. I think that they just really like rap music. And as someone who also really likes rap music, it's fun to kind of play that game with them where everything is like coded rap language. Andrew Nas recommends De La Soul's Ego Trip in Part 2 from their great album Balloon Mind State, as well as Triple Six Mafia's Victim of a Drive-By, Mask and the Glock. That was from their underground tape, Smoked Out, Loked Out, but you can also find it on the compilation Underground Part 1. Andrew, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. After a break, Tony Hale will talk about his performance as the beaten-down mama's boy Buster Bluth on Arrested Development. All that Buster wanted in life was safety. That was his only desire in life. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Throwing shade is the art of deserved public disrespect, and no one does it better than Brian and I on our podcast, Throwing Shade. Every week, we take off our pants and tell the people who are the enemies of ladies and gays where they can shove it. They can shove it up their butts. That was implied. Check out Throwing Shade on the Maximum Fun Network. I hate giving you compliments, but that was actually really good. I know. I practiced like real hard. Now you're bragging. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I guess Tony Hale went from working actor to cult superstar with his portrayal of Buster Bluth on the sitcom Arrested Development. He also plays the loyal assistant to the vice president on the HBO series Veep. 
He's been nominated for an Emmy for that role. With both characters, he combines a wide-eyed, baby-like innocence with a sort of sweet overcommitment to almost everything he does, always to absolutely brilliant comic effect. I spoke to Tony last year prior to his shooting the fourth season of Arrested Development and the second season of Veep. Tony, it's just, it's really great to have you on Bullseye. Thank Thank you you for for, having me. Thank you for joining me on the show. Um, I want to play a clip from Veep, uh, the HBO series that um, you are a co-star of. This show is set in the world of the vice presidency. Um, The star of the show is Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who plays the vice president, Selena Meyer. Mm -hmm. And um, you are her, what's called, Body man. I'm her body man. Um, what is a? Let's ex- explain what a body man yeah, is. I'm kind of body man slash personal aide, where I carry around this large bag, um, and whatever she needs, I give her. Like it could be an extra pair of shoes, hand sanitizer. Another character calls it your <laughs> bag. <laughs> it's my bag. I'm her. <laughs> um, and it's pretty much whatever she needs. I have it. And if I don't have it, then I'm just, it's just horrible. Cause I mean, I need to always be prepared. I think there's like 60 pockets in the bag and I know where each <laughs> thing is. I know where the Kleenex is. I know where some lady unmentionables are if she needs them. There's a really brutal scene where she comes down on you yeah. like a, like a hammer Oh yeah, because you only have one box uh, of vice, vice presidential M&Ms. M&Ms. Yeah. Cause I, she needs, she's trying to kind of butter up to this guy and she says oh and let's give you two boxes and i only have one box and you i mean that is just <laughs> career suicide for me to only have one box of m&ms for her so in this scene from the show uh the vice president is supposed to be schmoozing with some senators uh you are by her side and um you are you are letting her know about what each of the senators sort of personal characteristics are as she uh, as she shakes hands with them is this the right room? Are we early or... Senator or... Phil Dorsey, 2 o'clock. I'm not a sniper. Philip! Ah, uh, Madam Vice President, welcome. Thank you. Oh, you remember my chief of staff, Amy. Oh, Amy, it's nice to see you. His daughter, you. Emily, just graduated nice from Harvard. As well. Tell me, how is Emily? Oh, she's good. Oh, good. Can I get you something to drink? I would love a coffee. You got it. Okay, thank yeah. you. What's going on, Amy? There aren't enough people to fill a canoe in here. Okay. Hello. What's wrong? That was so your bad okay. What's wrong? You? Senator Mike Dudley, he's interested in maps. Mike, you found us. Oh, Madam Vice President, is that a map joke? <laughs> yes, it is. It <laughs> oh, is. Madam Vice President. I don't know who this man is. Hello. Okay, here comes Dorsey with your coffee. Gary, your- I have large moving shapes covered. Okay. Okay? Okay. I love that part of Gary, who's, uh, that's my character's name in the show, is he does whisper these, all these things into to Julia Selena's ear so when she's talking to somebody, I'll whisper something to her like he's a triathlete or, you know, he has a brother in Rage Against the Machine or something that she can, <laughs> that she can have a conversation piece with this person. And I love that Gary is just this walking Wikipedia where he can just <laughs> randomly just recite these factoids. He's not great with policy. Anything having to do with politic policy, he gets a little – confused and and crazy but when it comes to random facts about people he he knows that there's a moment in the third episode where he he leans over and whispers in the vice president's ear a factoid about her own daughter yeah exactly (laughs) and she sort of chides him (laughs) and then uses it immediately totally of course yeah she doesn't have the best relationship with her daughter i know more about her daughter than she does i mean all of the other characters on the show have these have these sort of uh, policy connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your character is so personally yeah, connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so pretty much my identity is completely wrapped in Selena, Julia's character. I've my Gary, who I play, all he's got is cats at home, and he. The, the thought <laughs> is. If he were to, because my character should have left my job in my twenties. I should. Nobody has my job past their twenties. Whereas me, it's my identity. So the thought of leaving it is just seems like suicide, you know? So I am so enmeshed and have this incredibly codependent relationship with Selena that she has become my identity. So I will do whatever it takes to serve her. Well, you were actually in a commercial in the uh, 90s that was a, a commercial that I, I said to my wife, oh, 
uh, Tony Hale was in this commercial, and she knew instantly oh, what it really? was, despite the fact that it was now ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah, which was this Volkswagen commercial, uh-huh. which, which featured the song "Mr. Roboto" yeah. by Styx, in which you are—I would play a clip from it if it wasn't yeah. completely visual. Yeah, but this was a commercial with you essentially inside of a Volkswagen Golf or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, miming this song uh-huh. and singing along and then your friend gets inside and sings along with you. Yeah. And it was between that song or um, Amadeus. They were trying to decide between Mr. Roboto or Amadeus. I remember that. But the, interestingly enough, the guy that directed that commercial was Phil Morrison, who directed Junebug. What they're selling is it's a really soundproof car. So you could go <laughs> crazy in your car and then the minute you open the door... I mean, the minute you shut the door, nobody hears you. And so it really talks about the stereo system, and it's something very attractive. And so then they put me in, who just acts like a nut in the car. But it kind of, what I was always fascinated by was, I mean, the car is great. Yeah. We're not talking like an amazing car here. We're talking about a nice car, but you really see the power of advertising. And you really see the power of something, you know, they took a creative idea, it was fun, and then they just sell like crazy. And you're like, holy cap, that really has got some power. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tony Hale. He was a steadily working actor for years. Then he landed a role on Arrested Development as Buster Bluth. That changed everything. After a long hiatus, that show came back this year for a fourth season. Hale's also been nominated for an Emmy for his work on HBO's Veep. He and I spoke last year prior to his filming the fourth season of Arrested Development and the second season of Veep. You, when when you were still living in New York, helped create this thing called the Haven. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could. I wonder if you could tell me first of all a little bit about what what that what. I mean, it's it still exists, although from what I can sure. tell from its Twitter, it's not active at the yeah, moment. I don't think but. it's going on anymore. I think it kind of. I think it because at the time, the reason why my friend Kathy Karbaski and I we started it was we were people of faith. Our faith was very important to us. And we were meeting a lot of people that the church... We should explain that you're Zoroastrians. (laughs) Exactly. I do. I'm about to take off. Um, But we we were meeting a lot of people that were from the church, and their communities were not supporting them uh, in their kind of artistic endeavors, um, unless they were doing like... Kurt Cameron movies or something, you know, right. something that was along was more in the kind of Christian kind of box of what they saw as art. Um, and we just really, really kind of created, wanted to create kind of a support system for people whose faith is important to them. And it's a part of, it's a huge part of their life. And then they also have, you know, various artistic endeavors. And so we had a lot of dancers, painters, actors, obviously, and singers, and just really got together. We saw each other's work. And we really encourage each other because I think the fact of the matter is there is so much rejection in this business and there's so much, um, there's a lot of jealousy, you know, because everybody is terrified they're not going to have that gig. They're not going to make the rent. And so we really wanted a supportive group where we could encourage each other, you know, and that was, that's where it kind of came out of. I mean, this is sort of like a, it was like a Monday night Bible study type thing. Sure. But um, tell me, like, what was different about what you were doing yeah. from what I imagine when I hear Monday night Bible study exactly, type yeah. thing? And it really, I wouldn't really say it was a Bible study, even though we did talk about the Bible. I mean, I remember one part of the group was we had um, like an inspiration time where someone would kind of exhibit their work. Um, they'd get up and do a song or, or, or a poem that they wrote. But then there was also a time of uh, thankfulness, which sounds cheesy. But, you know, out here, even with people who have tons of stuff, everybody's either afraid they're going to get knocked off the top or they're not going to get to the top. I mean, it's or whatever. There's so much fear and so and anxiety. So we really wanted a time where we forced ourselves to acknowledge what we were thankful for. And it could be anything. It could be that, you know, I got an apartment or I got this great temp job or um, I got a, I got an acting gig or something just to kind of promote a, a, a time of thankfulness. 
And it really just allowed us to check our attitude a little bit. And that was kind of one of the things. There's a thing about uh, about show business. My my friend uh, Julie Klausner, who's a very funny and talented uh, writer and performer in New York, I was just listening to her, her very excellent podcast, How Was Your Week? And she was describing coming back from Los Angeles and feeling relief for no longer having interactions where people looked her up and down, uh, yeah. wondered if she could help them in any way, yeah. decided that uh, she yeah. couldn't, and then cut the, cut themselves off from her. Yeah, and it's and there's real. I mean, the fact is, and we've all the business is fleeting. You know, this things come and go. It's like a machine, but it's relationships and finding people who know you and you can trust and you can have deep, thoughtful, you know, truthful relationships. That's what matters. You know, and that's what we need to invest in more, you know, because that's longevity. The the business, as we've seen, things cycle. It's not longevity. Relationships are longevity, you know. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Arrested Development. I mean, I'm I'm not alone in uh, this being one of my favorite television programs. Oh, yeah. Um, Yay. You know, let, why don't we start with uh, a clip from the show? Um this is my guest, Tony Hale, uh, as Buster. He's explained to his uh, brother and his overbearing mother that he's got a new girlfriend, although um, he, he also admits that he, does not ha- that he didn't have his glasses on when he saw his girlfriend, um, but he is pretty sure that he is in love. Buster's out of control. What do you mean, another panic attack? Me? No. She's just waked up because I have a girlfriend. Oh, waiter hands him a note. Suddenly, Steve McQueen. He doesn't even know what she looks like. I know she's a brownish area with points. And I know I love her. I'm calling Dr. Miller. Okay, I don't know I love her. But I cannot tell you how liberating it is to be with someone who's not mom. Who's nothing like her. Yeah, and you're just... You're just jumping right into this, huh? Oh, yes. Yes. That's what you do when life hands you a chance to be with someone special. You just grab that that brownish area by its points and you don't let go no matter what your mom says. The thing that I loved about your portrayal of Buster was that you were you were doing that but your character was also I mean, almost clowning. I mean, the yeah. physicality, <laughs> the physicality of, yeah. of that character was so rich. So I mean, crazy. And I remember the first year, because um, he, he was, Mitch was saying that he kind of wanted a, like a Buster Keaton thing going. And so if you notice in kind of a, the first few episodes, they had kind of paled me out a little bit and tinted my lips kind of red. Because they wanted this kind of silent movie kind of mime thing going with like a Buster Keaton thing. So um, he really, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. There's something about that Buster Keaton quality. I mean, it's the the part of Buster Keaton. This is going to sound really horrible. But the being physically abused by his parents part of Buster Keaton, the... The pain part, the yeah, physical yeah, yeah. pain yeah. part that you can see in a Buster Keaton movie, yeah. you can feel the pain. That's right. part of what makes him so funny yeah. is that you can feel that physical pain when he's doing stuff. Totally. And he was such a container for tremendous amounts of abuse from his mother, Buster was. And I love that it would just... Both Keaton and Bruce. Yeah, yeah. And Buster Bluth, like he would, he would receive these just hurled of just, and not just kind of his mother, but just everybody was just kind of this container things. And then it would just lash out at these <laughs> random places where he could just express it all. And those were some of my favorite moments. Well, let's hear that scene in which, uh, in which you uh, lash out at your mother with a string of profanities. <laughs> now, needless to say, these profanities were uh, aired on primetime television, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, they will be appropriate for the radio unless you're uncomfortable with implied profanity. <laughs> she's the last person everyone needs something from. Well, she likes to be needed, just as long as it doesn't cost her anything. It's like she gets off on being withholding. Whoa, Buster. Look who's got something to say. <laughs> I'm mom, and I want to shoot down everything you say so I feel good about myself. Look who's ragging on the old lady. Hey, hey. Hey, I'm an uptight <laughs> Buster. <laughs> you old horny 
no one's going to top that. That's funny because I think Jason at some point said in the press that um, I recited the alphabet. And I was like, <laughs> what? I didn't recite the alphabet. Uh, I don't really remember what I recited, but I do remember because, I mean, I cuss, but I don't have like – because I remember them saying, all right, you need to just kind of go off for you know two minutes or so. And I was thinking, oh, gosh, I don't – I gotta look into my cuss vocabulary. You're I'm also no, I don't you have a keep... reputation now as a church-going man that we've just established, and <laughs> yeah, so it's sure. it, we're gonna we're, people are out there imagining you going like, "Gosh, darn it!" No, no, I definitely, I definitely let loose. But I remember, ha- I remember having a talk with my friend Dusty and saying, "All right, Dusty, I need you to give me like a litany of just kind of <laughs> cussing to like let me have something to say because in the moment I think I might get so ner- ner- I just I don't know. I'll just keep saying <laughs> over and over and over, and it won't, it won't be as exciting." <laughs> Was your friend Dusty in the Merchant Marine or something? Man, he let loose. And I was like, thank you. Great. Let's do it. <laughs> but I think I mixed that with, because in the moment I forgot a lot of it and I probably put some alphabet in there somewhere. Well, Tony, I, I sure appreciate you uh, taking the time to be oh, on Bullseye. So it was fun. really a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Tony Hale, one of the Emmy-nominated co-stars of the HBO comedy V. He and I spoke last year prior to his filming the fourth season of Arrested Development and the second season of Veep. We can look forward to a third season of Veep next spring. Here on Bullseye, we like to close with a culture recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Sometime in 1950, a quiet man rented a garage from a neighbor. The quiet man wore glasses, didn't really have friends, and worked as a janitor for the General Services Administration in Washington, D.C. He was small and plain. The man's name was James Hampton. Because he didn't really have friends, we don't know much about what happened in that garage over the next 15 years. Researchers have found a few stories of folks who peeked in over that time, but it seemed mostly to be a solitary thing. In that unheated garage, Hampton would work from midnight when he got off work to dawn, night in, night out. In 1964, 15 years after he rented the garage, Hampton died. Not long after that, the landlord cut open the lock. He was hoping to find something he could sell to help cover some back rent. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like for that landlord to throw open that door, how he must have reacted when he saw what was inside. It was called the throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly. You can see it yourself, actually. If you happen to live in Washington, D.C., you could go see it tomorrow. It's in the folk art wing of the Smithsonian American Art Museum, transported whole as it lay when the landlord sold it almost 50 years ago. But for that landlord to open a door expecting to find maybe a motorbike or some old magazines and to find what he did... Even that amazing name, the throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly, hardly seems to do this thing justice. It's a throne, but it's a hundred other things, too. Imagine the sanctuary of the grandest Catholic church you've ever been in. And then imagine it created piece by piece by one man from discarded furniture, insulation tubes, and layer after layer of metallic foil a collection of the highest devotional art made by one man at night from junk. Hampton wasn't a fine artist or even a carpenter. He was a man who, just like Noah, believed that God had told him to build something, that God had come to him in corporeal form and instructed him to prepare for a very real, very imminent coming of Jesus to take all of his modest life and dedicate it to creating something worthy of a power so much greater than him that it was unimaginable. For that landlord, unprepared to open that door and see it as the light from the opening swung in, 180 individual pieces made from tin cans and broken chairs and a sawed-in-half table, an altar and a throne and a lectern and grand, graceful crowns And that table that the Bible sits on, I'm not even sure what that table's called. All in silver and gold, glittering in the dim light of the garage. It's awesome just to think about. And here's the part of the story where I admit something. I am personally not a believer. 
I went to church as a kid and I never minded it much. I even worked for a church for a while, but I've never believed. It's not, you know, a, a point of pride for me. It just is what it is. Even if I were a believer, I, I don't think I'd be the same kind Hampton was. I've got plenty of friends who go to church, but I don't think any of them have talked to any angels lately. But when you stand before this throne, you feel what it is to be awed. Honestly, it doesn't matter to me if Hampton's masterpiece was the work of God's representative on earth or the work of a third shift employee of the General Services Administration. Neither one of those is any more remarkable than the other. I'm tempted to say that when the landlord opened that door, he saw the glory of which man was capable, or alternately, the glory of what God gives man. But my honest opinion is that he saw something else. He saw a man reaching out with all of his soul and reverence for beauty, for universality, a man reaching for something bigger than being a janitor, even bigger than being a man, struggling to reflect God. And if you ask me, it's that beautiful, heroic reaching that's important. The willingness to give it all over to something bigger than oneself, no matter how scary it might be to look upon that bigness. If I were that landlord, if I were Meyer Hertlieb of Washington, D.C., and I threw open that door, I think I would have found great comfort in the inscription that James Hampton left behind. In gold and silver marquee letters, right at the top of his majestic life's work is a simple message. It says, Fear not. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org, or you can post about our show in our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. You can get in a big argument about how I just said on the radio that I don't believe in God. After all, getting into an argument about whether or not you believe in God is what the Internet is for. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.